I invite you to grab your Bible this morning or an insert found in your bulletin and turn with me once again to the book of Judges as we return to our study of this book. Uh, There's some Bibles in the back if you do not have a copy of God's Word. This is week three in our uh, new study of this Old Testament book, and it's part three of what is known as the prologue of the book of Judges. And I'm not sure I've given you the structure of the book real clearly, um, but the prologue goes from verse 1 of chapter 1 through verse 6 of chapter 3, which is where we'll finish this morning. And that uh, group of verses basically introduces all that is to come. And then beyond that, chapter 3, verse uh, 7, through most of the book, through the end of chapter 16, uh, are the six cycles of judges that we will go through in the coming weeks. And then at the end of the book is what many call the epilogue or the appendix uh, to the book of Judges, Uh, We're going to touch on it this morning, uh, chapter 17 through 21, but that gives uh, really the picture, the total picture of the depravity of Israel's sin and rebellion. So as we've been looking at this introduction uh, for the last two weeks, uh, and as we anticipate this downward spiral that I've been telling you is coming, we've been challenged and we've been reminded about the significance of the small things, about the danger of losing the next generation, and it's also given us a picture of the nature of our God, the God who is worthy to be known, a God of justice and holiness, and it's that justice, and it's that holiness, remember, that fuels this conquest, this merciless conquest of the land that God has given His people, and it's a conquest that is not our calling today. We are not called to be crusaders. We're called to be exiles We're called to be strangers in a land that is not our own, and yet a land that we're called to bless. And yet, even though that is a different context than the one we find here, it is, this book is, instructive for our lives together. So we're going to finish off the prologue this morning, and I promise we'll move on to the actual judges uh, that will form uh, the heart of our study. Uh, but for now, we're going to read verses 11 of chapter 2 through verse 6 of chapter 3. And if you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Judges chapter 2, starting at verse 11, reading down through verse 6 of chapter 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. 
Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon and from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Lebo, Hamath. They were there for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which He commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, just like last week, and I told you this might be the case in the weeks to come, just two truths for us to meditate on this morning as we sum up the prologue to this book of Judges. Another warning and another meditation on the character of of the God who we worship this morning and the God of the book of Judges. Two realities that we've been taught, interestingly enough, in other places recently here at Ascension, but he puts them before us again this morning. And the first one is this. We must be vigilant against the idols of our day. We must be vigilant against the idols of our day. Hobbies and Hollywood, sports and status and sex, power, possessions and pleasure, reputation and recreation, comfort, control, and choice. And the Baals 
in the Ashtaroth. Although the names have changed, our times are much different than the times that we just read of. Our hearts are much the same. We are people who wander. We are people who make good things ultimate things. We are people who abandon their Creator for that which is created. We began to read about it last week, this generational slide that had occurred in the day of the judges. Commitment had turned into complacency, and complacency had then turned in to compromise. We talked about what might be driving that in the past. Maybe it was driven at first by political expediency, but now it had become a religious reality in the life of God's people. What does the text say? Abandoning the Lord, they went after other gods. This begins the downward spiral, the downward cycle of the book of Judges. And and here in this passage this morning, we get uh, kind of a micro outline of what is to come and how these cycles will play themselves out. Verse 11, God's people abandon Him by committing sin, by committing idolatry. And so verse 14, what does he do? He gives them over to their enemies. He gives them over to enslavement. Verse 18, he then hears the groaning of his people. The same word used here in the book of Judges is also used in Exodus to describe the groaning of God's people in slavery under Pharaoh. And God hears that. And he responds, verse 18, he sends them a judge, a deliverer who the Lord is with, who the Lord has empowered by his spirit. And that judge brings a short respite, a short rest from the error of their ways before the people forget. And the cycle begins all over again. These days are memorialized for the people of Israel in Psalm 106. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 106. Israel will need to remember these days, and the psalmist knows it. We need to remember these days, and so it's here for us in the psalm. Psalm 106, verses 34 through 43 The psalmist says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters. They poured out innocent blood, skipping down to verse 40. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them. And they were brought in subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress. They went after other 
gods. I want us to think about that for a few moments. Because the going after other gods for the people of Israel did not happen overnight. They didn't just wake up one morning and decide, we're not going to serve Yahweh. We've chosen a different worldview for our household. No, they accommodated. They borrowed. They subtracted from what they had already been given. They added to what they had been entrusted with. What began subtly became ugly became front and center. And it began, it began in worship. And then it extended to their entire lives. And it needs to be, I think for us, a warning. Just as last week was a warning about losing the next generation, this week is a warning about being vigilant against the idols of our day. You see, the epilogue the last chapters of Judges, which we probably won't dig deeply into, but they give us a taste of what's to come. In chapter 17, we learn of, of Micah. And what is Micah doing? You can read this later this afternoon, chapter 17, or in community group. Micah chapter 17, Micah had stolen from his mother He comes back to his mother, gives back what he has stolen, his mother forgives, and then they decide to basically commit apostasy together. They take this silver that he had initially stolen and they dedicate it to the Lord. For what purpose? They dedicate it to the Lord, to Yahweh, in order to make an idol for themselves. And then Micah decides, well, we've got an idol, let's make worship even more convenient I'm going to ordain one of my sons as a priest to serve in my house. And the spiraling, the accommodation begins. And in a pluralistic and pragmatic society, this was no doubt easy for God's people to do. And in a pluralistic, pragmatic society like ours, this is actually pretty easy for us to do as well. And so I think, first of all, this call to vigilance against the idols of our day comes to us as a church. It comes to us as a a body. It's a warning. It's a warning against innovation in worship. It's a warning against the tweaking of teaching and practice that God's people have been involved with for thousands and thousands of years. How how careful and how slow we ought to be as a church. And you, you know every generation has an arrogance of its own. We know better than they know. They were simpletons, we are not. And I recognize there's a balance in the ministry, in the life of God's people, in the worship of God's people, to say it pointedly. 
I recognize there's a balance. We ought to contextualize for our day and age, right? We ought to make the gospel relevant. Absolutely. We don't need to be unnecessarily stuck in the past. But ought we be driven or always be concerned about being accepted, being current, being comfortable to the culture around us? Absolutely not. The way that we worship, the reasons for even this gathering here this morning are set in place not just by centuries of heritage, but by God Himself in His Word. Preaching, for instance. This is such a wonky thing that we do. A sinful, falling man standing up before you and opening God's Word and and proclaiming His truth to you and we say that God is speaking to us through these means and surely in a visual culture, in a fast-paced culture such, such as ours, we ought to move on. We should be watching movies this morning, not listening to boring Nate. And yet God says that through the foolishness of this, that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word, the Word proclaimed. Paul told the church in Rome, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we must be vigilant against the idols of our day. And I think that begins with worship, and we could talk about lots of other areas of worship. But of course, this is true for our individual lives as well. For your individual choices. We've talked about this before. Hardwired, each of us, made in God's image, we are hardwired to be glory seekers. And yet we serve an invisible God in a culture which is an increasingly visual culture, right? How prone we are to lose perspectives ourselves. We must be vigilant against the idols of our day. And so let me ask some questions to begin to kind of get us into this discussion a little bit. What does your heart long for, really long for, when you have space to think and to reflect? What does your heart long for? What do you dream about? Where does your imagination run wild? What are you going after? What are you all in on? Whether it be through your time, through your money, through some other sacrifice. What stirs your emotions like nothing else? So much so that when you don't get it, you feel anger boiling up in you. And when you get it, you have an elation like no other. You see, those are questions, questions to be wrestled with individually, wrestled with in community, but those are questions that help uncover our idols. Because at the heart of every sin is idolatry. 
Behind every sin is the determination that there is something more important or better than God himself. Romans 1, Paul told the church, although they neither, neither knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Martin Luther once said that that's the reason that the Ten Commandments begins with a commandment against idolatry because everything flows from that. Now, we could go lots of different directions in talking about the idols of our heart. Our challenge to vigilance is different than Israel's challenge to vigilance against the idols of their day, right? Tim Keller, PCA pastor, New York City, now retired, wrote a great little book. I know many of you have read it. If you haven't, I commend it to you, a little book called Counterfeit Gods. It's a great book that begins to flesh through some of these issues. But I want to challenge us this morning towards vigilance and something that providentially I've been reading about and thinking about significantly recently. And it's this, the cultural idols that are subtly put before us through our modern media, through our visual images. And this is important particularly for you young people, for you teens, because as your parents have probably told you before, you're growing up in a world that is very different than ours. When we were your age, if we wanted to make a phone call, we didn't reach in our pocket. We went inside to the kitchen, or we tried to find a phone booth at a 7-Eleven. I've been reading this book. It's called Competing Spectacles. I commend that to you as well. It's not quite as pointed on idolatry, but I want to li- read you this quote to kind of get us going because I think it's a penetrating quote. At least it is for my own heart. He says this, the human heart bends towards what the eye sees. And today's image makers fling into the world digital spectacles of sex, wealth, power, and popularity. Those images, those spectacles, they get inside us, they shape us, and they form our lives in ways that compete with God's design for our focus and our worship. You see, at its very heart, idolatry seeks to, and you, saw, you see it here, idolatry seeks to bring what is far off near, accessible. And this is the reality of the culture that we live in, this increasingly visual culture. He goes on, he says, like the ancient idols, Images are active but dead, powerful but weak, meaningful but meaningless. In themselves, they are powerless objects, void of meaning, until worshipers invest them with redemptive hope, at which point they animate into idols with demonic potency 
demonic potency behind them and divine condemnation against them. Now, that's strong, that's strong language. Is it, is it too strong? I, I don't think so. At least not for my own heart. And listen, I am not saying, I am not saying that there is no redeeming value in our day and age of the digital spectacles of movies and television and internet. There certainly is. God can be glorified through those mediums. But I am warning us in this very specific way, trying to apply God's Word to us, I am warning us to be vigilant against those things that compete with God's design for our own focus and our own worship. And it's not that God is against visuals. Visual spectacle. He is all for visual spectacles. Have you ever seen the sunrise or the sunset? That's a visual spectacle that declares that He is God, that declares His glory. Psalm 19, and it's a voice that goes out into all the earth. The commitment of marital love, which some of us enjoy, is a spectacle from God to proclaim to the world how Christ loves His church. The horror of the cross of Christ Even that very symbol, which dangles on our necks at times, is a spectacle proclaiming the depths of God's love. So the question is, how can we fix our gaze? How can we fix our gaze there? It begins by vigilance, by recognition. Let me give one more quote. I know I'm quoting a lot here. One more quote from this great little book. He says this, feeding on sinful media will annul your holy affections. Yes, right? We all know that. But pampering yourself with a glut, and that's the key, a glut of morally neutral media also pillages your affectional zeal. Each of us must learn to preserve higher pleasures by revolting against lesser indulgences. I think that's a powerful quote. And it's the challenge of being vigilant in our day, in our age, against the idols that are put before us. I'm going to leave that there. For the sake of our souls, be vigilant and let the Lord deal with you as He sees fit. Second truth for us this morning, how do we begin recognizing the need to be vigilant and then setting our gaze on the one who is infinitely greater? And that's the second truth. God's love is a jealous and faithful love. We see that in the passage here. We kind of drifted away a little bit from the passage in applying that idolatry. 
But in this passage, we see the character of the God who we've come to worship. And we camped out on this last fall through our study of the book of James when I proclaimed to you that God loves you as his bride. And all that comes with that beautiful picture of marriage. God is jealous for the affection, for the allegiance of his people. Not because he is needy, not because he is afraid, but because he has chosen to set his love on you. And it's a love that is faithful. As I said last week, Israel deserved, based upon their actions, they deserved to be blotted out. And yet by his grace, he preserves them. Right? Psalm 106, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, continuing what I read earlier. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God's love for you is a jealous and a faithful love. And we see it again here this morning. When our text says that they went after the Baals, the Canaanite, that's the word, the Canaanite word for lords. So in a sense, there's lots of local idols. There's lots of manifestations. But at the heart of Canaanite religion in this passage, where all the local deities pointed, was Baal, the most powerful god. And at his side was Ashtoreth, his female companion who was the goddess of fertility, love, and war. And so you might imagine some of the ancient practices that accompanied Baal and his goddess of fertility. At the heart of pagan temple worship was temple prostitution as part of worship. And so the writer, to ju- the writer here in Judges doesn't mince words about God's people's idolatry. How does he describe it? They hoard after other gods, literally and figuratively. They prostituted themselves. They were sleeping around. They turned their backs on Yahweh, the lover of their souls, whom they had entered into covenant with, and they united themselves with that which was unclean and that which was evil. And I suspect that we don't think about our sin in that way enough. As spiritual adultery. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, thinking about our sin like that is so helpful for us to take our sin seriously. If we meditate and really digest that God loves you as a bride, Isaiah 62, my delight is in her, your land married, for the Lord delights in you. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Sin is more than just a citizen of a kingdom violating the laws of a king. Sin is more than just a child of God doing something that his father told him not to do. Sin is flirting with a person at the next table while you're on a date with your spouse and then leaving your spouse at the restaurant and going home with that person you began to flirt with. 
For generations, the Lord has wanted to communicate that truth to His people, going so far as having one of His prophets, Hosea, marry a prostitute, becoming a living parable for everyone to see. Here's another quote, different book. The triune God is like a husband and wife who love one another deeply and love their relationship and share life so much that they decide to bring children into it. Only this triune couple creates children from nothing. God created the world to get a bride for His Son. And this is the context that I want us to understand and to digest God's actions here with His people. In Judges chapter 2. Because God's love is a jealous love. And so God gets angry. He gets righteously angry. As if he were left at the restaurant as you walked out the door. So what he does is he gives them over to the very enemies whose gods they serve. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, to test them that they might know war. This isn't God playing games with his people. This isn't hand-to-hand combat training. This is Yahweh showing his people how much they need him, how dependent they are on him, how they will get to that point of groaning and crying out. Parents, you do this with your children. You're forced to in some ways. You've said no and no and no again, and then finally you just say, okay, I'm going to let you walk into that blackberry bush because you need to feel it. You wouldn't do that with oncoming traffic, but you do it with a blackberry bush for the sake of their growth. In the same way, Yahweh's love is jealous and it's faithful for His people, for His bride. And so undergirded under all of this is His sovereignty that continues this story of redemption that He's writing and this remnant that He is saving. Yes, we must be vigilant against the idols of our day, but we must remember begins by remembering of God's love for you as his bride. And so I pray that this passage will reveal in whatever way, however the Holy Spirit chooses, that it would reveal your wandering, that it would help you identify idols in your heart and in your life, things that are drawing your gaze away from the Father. But more than that, let this passage put before you And let it recapture for you the vision of God's love. A love that sent Jesus, the true worshiper, for your rescue. It's the brightness of the cross that leaves everything in its shadow. And that's where we begin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this time in the life of your people a time of great struggle, a time of great wandering, a time of of turning. 
And yet a time that is recorded for us, a people prone to the same wandering, though in different ways, to different degrees, Holy Spirit, show us, show us our sin, show us our idolatry, help us, Spirit of Christ, to fix our eyes on the glory of Jesus, the jealous and faithful love of the Father shown to us through Jesus. May we go from this place filled to overflowing with the gospel and motivated all the more to walk in holiness for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.